Okay, last but not least, I'm going to introduce our speaker today because we've got a guest speaker who many of us know and love, the man on the drums, Andy Deeb. So Andy Deeb has been part of our congregation since it began. Is that right, Andy? I think that's true. Or close to it. And Andy went out to San Francisco Theological Seminary and has been in seminary studying to be a pastor. And it's been really fun to watch Andy progress and grow and mature in his, um, in his speaking and in his pastoring. And he's here this weekend and said, can I preach? And I said, yes, that would be lovely. And I said, you know, I've been doing this three-parter on Esther, uh, three-part sermon series that we just finished last week. I said, you can do what you want or feel free to give a different angle on Esther. And so I think Andy's going to be giving a different angle on Esther. And I said, that's great. It's kind of a good like, teachable moment for us in that you can come at different, you know, books of the Bible, different scriptures with an entirely different lens and find something new in it. And so I'm really excited to hear what Andy has to bring to that. So Andy, come on up here. Let's give him a good welcome. morning, everybody. Morning. And my mom told me to be sure that I say good morning, especially to all the mama bears watching online. So Yay. hi, mom, and hi, all you other moms watching. I never thought I'd be the hi, mom guy. Yeah. <laughs> the things we do for our mothers. Uh, so as Emily said, uh, I'm going to be talking about Esther, but I'm going to be approaching it from a different lens. What I've been working on in seminary um, is uh, transgender hermeneutics. So I focus pretty much exclusively on the Hebrew Bible. And I'm looking at scripture and writing about how do transgender people see themselves and interact with the text. So the word I used was hermeneutic. It's essentially just a fancy word for saying, what lens do we view the text through? So there's, um, you know, transgender hermeneutics, African-American hermeneutics, womanist hermeneutics, which is um, looking at the text uh, through the lens of black women, um, feminist hermeneutics, queer hermeneutics, disability hermeneutics, I could go on forever. Um, but uh, given that our identities are made up of a complex intersection of a variety, a variety of factors such as race, class, gender identity, sexuality, list goes on, um, everybody's hermeneutic looks a little different. So my transgender hermeneutic looks completely different than any other person's, most likely. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about looking at Esther, the story of Esther, through uh, my, my transgender hermeneutic. And when I look at the story of Esther, one thing sticks out to me in particular. And that's where Mordecai calls Esther out on her privilege, essentially, because, so, I'll just run through the story real quick so at least I know where I am in the story. Um, so, the Persian king decides to throw a huge party for like a week and gets every, all the men super drunk, and at the same time his wife, Queen Vashti, is entertaining all the women and they're having a party and probably getting super drunk too. So, at the end of this week, Xerxes is just, he's wasted. And he's like, hey, I think it's a good idea to get my wife out here naked in front of the entire kingdom. So he sends his eunuchs to go do it, and Vashti's like, no, not going to do that. Um, which proves a problem for the king, because essentially she just disobeyed him in front of the entire kingdom. All the men heard him say, I want this, and then he doesn't get it, and all the women see her be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so... 
the king's advisors get really scared because they're like, oh crap, what if our wives realize they can say no to us too? We got to do something about this. And so ends the reign of Queen Vashti. <laughs> um, so after she's gone, the king is real mopey and having second thoughts about what he did. And his advisors are like, well, we got to do something or maybe, maybe this whole process will repeat itself. The text is unclear if Vashti is dead or not. Or if she's, it says she's banished, but was she really banished? Was she dead? We don't know. Um, but anyway, his advisors are like, we should probably get a new wife for him and let's make sure he likes them, but let's also make sure we like them. Um, so they go through this whole process where they go through the land and they grab different women from different places and they go through this whole year-long beautifying process, the NLT translation says, which sounds kind of weird to me and ambiguous. But anyway, one of these women is Esther. Um, she's a Jewish woman, and she's raised by her cousin Mordecai, and they were um, Jews who got taken away during the Babylonian exile, so they're off in a foreign land. Um, and this foreign land is kind of hostile towards uh, Jewish people. So Mordecai tells her, you know, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Just keep it on the DL. Just be you. Except for don't tell them that part of you. Yeah. So while Esther is there, um, a eunuch, one of the king's eunuchs takes a particular liking to her and gives her like advice, like this is what you should wear, which turns out to like not be anything fancy. He's just like, go in there like you are. And Esther does, and the king likes her. So then she becomes his wife. Um, I don't know if it ever uses the word wife, actually. But she becomes the queen at any rate, so it's implied. Um, <clears throat> but then there's this, so after all that, there's this guy named Haman, and he's kind of a self-absorbed, really full of himself. He thinks he's the best. Um, and he gets really mad because Mordecai doesn't bow down to him one time. And he decides, well, we should just get rid of all of the Jews, which seems excessive to me. Whatever. Um, so he does that. He sneakily gets the king's permission to do it in his name and uh, starts this like year-long process of planning to kill all the Jews. And they find out, the Jewish people find out, and they go into a process of mourning. And Mordecai, um, it talks about Mordecai's mourning period in particular. He goes out to the outside gates of the palace in his sackcloth, which is like kind of burlap that is probably not very covering because Esther sends him clothes and is like, dude, put some clothes on. Um, but he doesn't. He's like, he says, how can I do this when our people are about to die? You, you have access to the king. Why don't you go do something about this? And Esther's like, well, I can't do that. I'll die. And Mordecai, I imagine it is just kind of this like, are you freaking kidding me right now? Like, you're gonna die? We're all gonna die. So Mordecai calls her out on this kind of idea of, I can't do anything because I might get harmed. Um, and that's the part that sticks out to me in particular. Because I am a white, straight, transgender man. So after I transitioned, I just, I can slip under the radar and nobody ever knows. And I lived like that for a little bit. 
and then I had one of these moments of realizing that like, well, I can do this and like slip under the radar and not be fine, or be fine. There are so many people who can't for a variety of reasons, whether they're transgender, whether they're not white, whether they are visibly queer, like the world is not nice to people who are different than the American norm. And if I decide that I'm more concerned about my safety than the well-being of all of my brothers, sisters, and siblings in the world, then I am just as responsible for the violence that happens to them. Because I know it better than somebody who is not trans. There's a murder epidemic in the trans community, particularly targeting trans women of color. Uh, trans women of color are, I think, like four times more likely to be murdered than the average citizen. It's crazy. And nobody, half the time it's not reported, nobody talks about it, nobody knows their names. But I know about it because I'm part of the community. But if I decide that I'm afraid to talk about being trans, or if I decide I'm afraid for my personal safety, who is gonna, who is gonna talk about these women? People who, who don't know about them can't talk about them, they don't know, so that's where I come in. I, I can use my position to reach, to reach people who otherwise wouldn't hear about these women, who otherwise wouldn't hear about this murder and violence ep epidemic against the trans community. And I see this, a similar thing going on in terms of race because well we don't white white people we can't we can't know what it's like to be black in america but we can listen we can hear what people are telling us and we can we can speak about it we can take a stand against the violence that is happening to them and if we don't we're participating in their death And this is where I see, where I feel Mordecai's words convict me in particular, is he's saying, if you don't speak up, you are participating in the death of our people. Um, so, yeah, that is uh, transgender hermeneutics, very roughly. It's all a work in progress. Um, but. Let us go out and remember that God calls us to speak from our positions of privilege. Amen. Amen. just good to see Andy as he's like maturing and growing and you're speaking. It was really well said. Um, and I thought, if you don't mind, I'm just going to riff off of that just a little bit here. I thought it's interesting because we do all bring different aspects of who we are into our culture, into our lives, into how we read the scripture text. And when I read Esther, I think sometimes there is a time to hide your identity. I know some of you who have been LGBTQ in particular, um, 
if you've got people who are really hostile to you and your family, like there's sometimes wisdom to doing that. And then when you get into a healthier space, um, then to be able to use that kind of privilege on others' behalf. I know that I felt that in some way. Like a lot of people wouldn't think, oh, she's gay if they meet me. Now, the first time Rachel saw me, she saw me run up on a stage and was like, oh, she's gay. Most people didn't know. I mean, like, you can kind of tell if you know, but I, it's like Andy, I feel like I can, I, can, I can hide or I can blend a little bit more. And certainly being white, that makes it um, even easier, right? I can just come across as a straight white woman. But there is a time when you just say, you know, I, I have to speak out on behalf of other people because there aren't a lot of other queer pastors that are speaking up on behalf, like when I see things are happening in the media. So I usually write letters to the editor or different things because I'm like, who else is going to do it? Um, but there's ways that we use our power and privilege. And as Andy was speaking, I was thinking, you know, I think a lot of us, I've heard a lot of stories this week. I don't know what it was. I think maybe me coming back from sabbatical, I'm meeting a lot of new people and a lot of the stories that I've been hearing from queer people or even their allies or people who love them are you know, stories of like really, really deep pain. And some of the people I've been talking to have really um, conservative families that have rejected them or even outright abusive to them. And it's, it's um, like a church like this, I think needs to be a space to hold all of this where we can come together with our pain and with our trying to find wisdom on when to come out and how to be out and when to use our privilege and how we can heal ourselves before we can act on behalf of others and really hold that tenderly in this place. And then for those of us who have maybe, you know, gone down this road a little bit further or have a little bit more support, are able to really embrace um, and support those who don't have that. Does that make sense? I know as Ken and I were even talking about, we're going to be doing a series on just the vision of the church uh, going forward starting in October. And I've been thinking a lot even about just some of you who are maybe straight and older, like just older straight couples that are here in the church. And thinking like, I don't know if some of you understand the importance of having... Um, like older brother, older sister, or parental type figures in people's lives who have been rejected by their family. And it's not even, like, I'm going to start crying. I'm seeing some of the other LGBTQ people crying as well. Like, you don't even have to be, like, meeting with them in your home every time. Just the fact that you're here, the fact that you're saying, like, you are blessed and you are loved, and you are part of this community and we value you, stand up for you, um, and we will be like that, that you have no idea what that means. I, don't, I mean, I hope maybe my tears are articulating it. Maybe some of the tears from some of you are articulating it. But that kind of deep-seated rejection that when you've experienced that in your own family, to be able to have people just really embrace you and let you just be and heal is, is just, it is a gift. It is the kingdom of God. It is the way that we heal. It is the way that we help dispel shame in our lives. It's the place where the Holy Spirit can come and help sit with us and reaffirm that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God and that we have value and worth. And this is the kind of community of Jesus that we're trying to create. Oh, Andy, you opened up some stuff here. <laughs> so I was thinking, with, we usually do two or three minutes of silence and I thought in this space, maybe there's a couple of different things. Maybe you're here in a place where you're like, man, I just, 
I, need, I just still need to feel more of God and I need to feel more of God's love and more of God's um, just welcome embrace that you can sit there in that space and we're just gonna give God a chance to do that. And maybe you're here in a space where you're like, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty good. Cup overfloweth. And maybe we can ask God to just show us maybe different places where he can use, he or she can use um, just the love and acceptance that we have that we can use on behalf of others. In other words, maybe a place where Jesus is inviting us to take a step out. So let's just take a minute here. We'll take some deep breaths. When I do silent meditation, I often have a particular space that I go to in my mind. And some of you probably have that. And if you don't, I would just invite you to think of a place that makes you feel really calm, a place that you experience the beauty of the world around you. And if it's helpful, you can just imagine that Jesus is coming and sitting beside you in this space. And I'm just going to say, Holy Spirit, come, that you would just breathe into us until we're overflowing with your love and your compassion. And in those spaces where we need healing, God, that we would just experience your acceptance of us. And in places where you're inviting us um, into a place of having courage and being able to stand up more for those around us, that this would be a space where we can hear your voice in that. So let's just take like two minutes in silence. Uh, babies, kids make noise, people make noise, so don't worry if it's not completely silent. But just Holy Spirit, come. If you have a particular relationship that's causing you pain, either because that person has rejected you or maybe you're an ally and you're just, it's causing some real friction in your life, I would invite you to just picture that person or persons in your hands before Jesus. And we'll just say, Jesus, just turn your face toward these places that are causing us pain and causing friction.
Jesus, may your peace and your love flow into our lives this weekend and out into the world around us. Amen.